0: we're live. It is Friday, September 17th, 2021, 5.01 p.m. We are here with our guest, Carla. Um, I, uh, Carla has, has written a new book, um, and uh, we're going to talk about the book. Uh, we're not allowed to have fun anymore and so we are instead allowed to have a conversation with carla about about how we're not allowed to have fun anymore um and this is a book about how we're not allowed to have fun anymore and because we're not allowed to have fun anymore and we're comfortable we gang up on democracy and so I want to start this conversation Tom Nichols and Carla um with the observation that normally when I read a book that accuses people of decadence um and that observes that society is decadent that is an argument for authoritarianism you know I'm thinking of Yukio Mishima or Um, the uh, 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 French and German writers of the 20s, the pro-fascist writers who were all about talking about how society was decadent and we needed a Führer to, you know, return us to spirit, right? Um, This is the first book I have ever read that is accusing us of decadence and concluding from it that the consequence of that decadence is a threat to democracy. Um, And so I want to start by asking you, were you aware of, uh, when you were writing this, of the sort of long tradition of authoritarians accusing the populace of decadence and turning that to an argument for authoritarianism? And were you sort of self-consciously playing on that form?
1: I, I wasn't self-consciously, you know, t- to say a, a book accusing people of decadence while I'm sitting here like Blofeld. I was you know, going
2: to say, you're a little you know, bit
1: like, you're I'm, kind
2: of like, what what is the guy, what's the Dr. Evil? Like, uh, or yes, I, yes,
1: Mr. Yeah, Bond. Blofeld, yes, uh, Mr. I Bond dies swiftly. I have concluded, Mister Bond, that decadence, democratic society cannot survive decadence, and so has Mister Bigglesworth here. Um, I didn't self-conscious. All right, I'm going to put you down. Is that all right?
2: We have to get Mike Pesca's naked cat to Tom Nichols somehow, because <laughs> like, that's uh, like is yeah.
1: I, I I didn't consciously play on that, but I was very blocked in the book when I was writing it, that I was making this argument. I know, I know you're going to let you go on. There you go. Um, I was very conscious in the book uh, that uh, I was making an argument about decadence and I was uncomfortable making it because it's not really comfortable to turn to your fellow citizens and say, you're the problem. You know, it's, um, it, it I didn't um, Let me just get this um, pushed away. There we go. I I wasn't really comfortable with turning to people and saying, you know, I am so virtuous that I can just tell all of you that, you you know, you are living bad lives or something. And so I was, I was conflicted about it. And I, I didn't want to make the argument (laughs) covered in fur. I didn't want to make the argument that, decadence can be remedied with authoritarianism. Because I think having studied the the old Soviet Union and having studied a lot of authoritarian governments, authoritarianism does not cure decadence. It makes it worse. There was no. But the
0: arg. No, no, I'm not making an argument about authoritarianism. I'm making an argument about about intellectuals who accuse the population Uh, of decadence. That is usually in the service of an argument for authoritarianism. No, what what I'm saying is that I. You are turning it into. uh, You're turning the argument on its head, which is that the decadent population is striving for meaning through authoritarianism and is losing faith in democracy. Right,
1: I I what I'm saying is I was aware of the argument that decadence can be remedied with authoritarianism and I'm saying I wasn't I wasn't trying to riff on it or play off of it simply because I I know that authoritarianism actually deepens decad- decadence. And so this is what I was trying to warn about. Uh and I did turn it on its head to say um It's authoritarianism is the outcome uh, of decadence rather than the remedy for decadence. And and I didn't use the word decadence that often because I guess having studied the old Soviet Union, again, that was you're a little embarrassed by it. Yeah, and also because it's got such a kind of a Soviet ring to it. You know, you decadent Western, you know, filthy capitalist bourgeois decadent yada yada. You know, Um, and I guess I. And, and also, because in a way, we are not decadent in the classic sense of uh, opulence. We've become decadent in a kind of grubby, small way, which is why at the end of the book, I invoked the proles from 1984. We're not decadent. We're not, we're not living through an era of you know flappers and Model Ts and gilded you know, Gatsby's. Um, Even our very awesome, which would be cool. But but even our wealthiest guy, you know, even even the Bezos and Branson types, you know, pretend to be kind of ordinary Joes, you know, in some way where it's almost like where the decadence that I'm talking about is the kind of grubby sort of small, petty, corrupt Self-centered, narcissistic decadence that comes uh, from you know the middle and the working class, rather than the, than the super rich. You know, again, like not not it's not like the the Rockefellers and the Pullmans of their era. You know, being ridden around in sedan chairs. It's um, it's us having four televisions and two computers and two cars, and you know, and then saying, "I'm so screwed. I'm so broke. Life is so hard." Um, I, it was that kind of decadence, because what happens is we then blame we get so accustomed to that standard of living uh, and and we regard it as an entitlement that whenever things don't go our way or we don't get things we want, we blame we blame not just a government or politicians. We blame the system of government itself. We say democracy has failed us. And I'm ok with saying Joe Biden failed us. Donald Trump failed us, or, You know, Nancy Pelosi screwed me over and didn't pass the right bill. That's that's all normal stuff. It's when people start saying things like, you know, this whole notion of liberal, secular, tolerant democracy sucks because it doesn't reward me adequately in the way I think I should be rewarded.
0: All right. So I want to poke at some aspects of the thesis here. But before I do, I, I want
2: to go. stake out before, but just before you say this, I want to just say that I'm going to stake out for at some point in the conversation. I want to come back to the idea of blame and like, what, and like, and, and the search for blame. Cause I have a, actually, I have actually
0: let's start there. Go oh, ahead. really? Yeah. Cause that's a uh, antecedent to some of the questions I have.
2: So I think I kind of, so, so Tom, I love this idea because I am also, um, I've looked at this from a cognitive like, science perspective, which is like, why do we have an impulse to blame? And I had studied this when I was in undergrad and a little bit when I was in grad school, but I kind of came back to it actually around the German Wings disaster, which I don't know if you, I think I might've mentioned this before, but it's that was the one where like the pilot, just like with no warning, crashed into the side of a mountain and like no sign that he was really depressed no sign but like the headlines around this were like we have no like there has to be someone to blame and it was like this massive churning of trying to find someone to blame and at like some point like okay well we can obviously like he's gone so he becomes an unpleasant like he's not a very useful person to blame we want someone that we can hold up and take a lesson from and kind of correct a system around Um, And this is like this whole kind of recursive system of blame. And there's a bunch of different models that are in competition in uh, cognitive science. But I think it's exactly, I think if we stop and think about it and realize this what we're doing, I I think it's like a thoughtful, I, I think it's a useful exercise because I just find that like right now, I mean, just for one example, I think we blame so much crap on social media. And like, why aren't we blaming this on government or why aren't we blaming this on other people that are doing it or like the people that you know like the Christchurch video like everyone when they had the live shooting Facebook did took 45 minutes to take it down and I did a whole story about this for the New Yorker about the team that ended up chasing it around the world to get this video taken down on Facebook and the people who kept reposting it to keep it going and keep it like keep it up the trolls from 4chan. and like one of the people I interviewed was like, "Do you know how many people viewed that video before we had the first flag on the video of it being like graphically violent material?" It was like fourteen thousand people looked at that video before anyone even flagged it as being a fe- like offensive. Like, why are all those fourteen thousand people not to blame?
1: You know, I, I it, this I had exactly the same kind of thought you did Kate the other day when I noticed that uh, the other day I don't know a month ago when uh, someone said, you know it's been two years or three years or whatever it's been since the Las Vegas shooting And they said, and the government still hasn't given us a reason why he did it. The government, right It's the government's fault that that, that it has not said and I'm I'm looking at this and saying, or just stay with me here maybe there's no reason that the government can maybe the guy was just cracked and a screwed up lost you know soulless human being who for in some paranoid recesses of his brain decided to go kill a bunch of people that does happen and this notion that no I live in a world where everything is ex- can be explained. Everything has a reason. And that means everything has a solution. And if there isn't, then I blame the government. Um, and you saw this with uh, the Las Vegas shooting. And you really, you even saw it um, with, um, uh, with 9-11. Because it's like, this is, the, this is why there are conspiracy theories about 9-11. No, it can't just be that 19 guys with box cutters took take over airplanes. That is too random and too scary. Therefore, there has to be some much larger conspiracy and explanation because otherwise I'm left with living with the randomness of the world and the government's job is to tell me the world isn't random and that I'm protected and that people are looking out for me. So don't that's, tell me there's no reason. You
2: know, That's the end of the cognitive sci- science argument. That's like the end of the Like people do this because they can't live with the nihilism, like the right. the, the lack of answers.
1: Well, it's in, right. and but, what, sorry, but I was okay. gonna just to add. I, I mean, to make a literary, you know, uh, pirouette here. When I wrote the Death of Expertise, I I brought up the passage from the Brothers Karamazov. You know, the the suffering of children. Would you subscribe to a god who thinks it's necessary to crush children under the car- carts, of Richmond? You know, no, I can't. I can't accept it. Well, you know, the idea that sometimes just bad stuff happens. I think we used to be and this comes back to the themes in the book. We used to be a more stoic society about things like this.
0: Right. So I want to explore with you why in in your framework in the book we come to be less so. And you start with an interest in an interesting place, which is that we don't know how to handle prosperity. Um, uh, you start with the idea that, hey, we're unable to face the fact that things are pretty good. So we tell ourselves all kinds of narratives that deny how good the environment is, not the environmentalism environment but the environment in which we live Um, so explain for us the, the, the need to deny that we're living in a very good time and that things are actually much better than they used to be including recently including in the ages we look back to
1: Okay so there's several pieces of this and in the book I talk about the problem of nostalgia and I'm actually not the only one that talks about this Anne Applebaum in Twilight of Democracy talks about it um that's where I stole I mean um borrowed the idea of restorative nostalgia which is Svetlana Boym's idea that nostalgia is not just about an imagined past but it's an imagined past that's been taken away from you by people you can then scapegoat for it um So there's a bunch of things going on. One is we don't, psychologically, and Kate probably knows better than I do. I mean, psychologically, people don't like to say that they're living in decent times because they don't want to jinx it. Uh, They feel like it's just bad luck to say, you know, times aren't so bad. Um, My dad used to talk about this with the the Greek immigrants that had made it rich in America. He said, no matter what you, he he was talking about one guy he knew made pizzas, you know, and he, he said, the guy's a millionaire. And he says, no matter when you ask him, if you say, So, how was business this year? He'd say, Ah, you know, eh, could be a little better. Not so sure. It might be, uh, you know. And they, it's like the guy never said ever, there was never a year he was in business. He said, Yeah, I had a pretty good year. Things are okay. It was always, ah, you know, eh, oh, you know, because we don't, because we live in fear of that. Now, I think um, my, you know my dad's generation it was easier for them to say we're living in good times because they had lived through the depression so it was really hard i mean if you were if you were alive if you were a middle-aged man in the 1970s or 80s you didn't really say you know 1930 those were some good times you just couldn't it was simply not possible to say that so i think part of it is a long unbroken sp- stretch of prosperity you don't really have the correct reference points to be able to say whether things are good or bad. It's just as good as it is. And what you're really thinking about are the things you don't have because you haven't lived through a period where you've had to come back from something terrible. Now I know people are going to say, Oh, you know, the great recession. That, that actually was, is not a particularly good reference point. And it's the SNL crisis. I mean, it's not a great depression situation. It's not even the late um, seventies. Because it's
0: not, it's not that protracted.
1: It wasn't that protracted and it, and it hit particular sectors of the economy in particular ways. Uh, And, and, you know, no matter, again, people are going to get mad at me for saying this. And because it ended in a relatively fast way with, you know, government action and there's still reverberations through the economy. But the fact is we're living in a time of a labor shortage and a very high standard of living, and we have been for years. Um, you know, even the data and some and in the book, I, I I put out, I point to data that says, you know, the nineteen, the the early twenty hundreds that everybody thinks was this big China shock, turns out it now well, maybe not. Incomes actually grew pretty fast. You know, working class families did reasonably well. None of this means there are no problems. None of this means that houses aren't <laughs> expensive or college isn't expensive, uh, healthcare is pricey. But this notion that we are living in the worst time becomes internalized um, because it's a way of saying that the things that I want and that I don't have are being denied to me by somebody else. Um, there is no, uh, let me just, there's two There's two parts of this. One is that we do not live with gratitude anymore. Um, You know, we simply don't have any sense of of kind of gratefulness for the, the, the standards of living we live under the other. And this is this comes from without opportunistic political entrepreneurs across the spectrum, but especially concentrated on the right now are pushing the idea that these are the worst times ever, that you are under siege that you are miserable, you know, I mean, it's almost like they're convincing you to be miserable uh, against, you know, it's like, who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? Trust me, you are miserable. Your life is a wreck. Uh, and that grievance is motive. because nobody runs for office. And I say this in the book, nobody runs for office saying, you know what? Things are be- Things are good, but they could be better. I could do better than the next guy. I can be marginally better than the guy I'm running against people. Catastrophize politics. It's like, if you don't elect me, your kids are going to be sleeping in the street. You know, you're, you're going to be in a gulag. Um, you're gonna, your house is going to be taken. I, I was talking to, um, a, a, a colleague, a very, you know, up upstate New York, conservative blue collar family he's a professor but he still you know lives near the family his dad is a well-off retired guy and he said i have to vote for republicans because the democrats are going to take all my money the minute i die and you know it's like you know because things are so bad and they have to fund the government because we're all broke and everything's miserable and he's looking he's saying dad what are you talking about you know what what where do you but that that's I I place that blame heavily on political entrepreneurs who have a vested interest in telling young people that this is the worst time that anybody could possibly be alive and telling old people, you had it so much better 40 years ago and you're being screwed. And there's just no, it's just, it's not true. Um, It's true in the individual for some people, right? There are people alive now saying, yes, I was better off 35 years ago. Well okay. But that's simply not in the aggregate true for America or the world. Um, and, and, you know, to believe that is almost an act of, well, I tell it, uh, and then I'll shut up about this, but I tell a story in the book where um, one of my friends from childhood says, you know, I remember when that fact, and he, we, cause we grew up on the same street. He said I remember when that was full and it was full of guys working and it, it was bustling. And I said, you can't possibly remember that. We were little kids. We broke the windows in that factory because it was empty. I said, Look, you literally are having a false memory. Like it's a recovered, you know, this is like, you know, like the McMartin scandal or something. You know, you're having this like recovered memory of something that didn't happen. And he kind of, he kind of looked at me, he almost shook his head like it was like physically uncomfortable level of cognitive dissonance but that's i think that's where we are now where we have just all convinced each other that 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 we are in the most utter misery that we've ever experienced and i i personally i find it having lived through the 60s 70s 80s 90s you know i'm i'm 60 years old i mean i it's just laughable that when people talk about this as the worst time ever but it's i think we're just in that cul-de-sac now
2: I, that was wonderful. I have so many things to say. I will start with the, the cul-de-sac and the political thing, and then work my way to kind of the more basic kind of premises. But I, so first of all, I believe, I agree with you so much on this idea that like you're both, that politicians are incentivized. I want to also just point this out. They're incentivized to create this. And I, this is, I saw this really great graphic that it was very politically incorrect of me to like in 2008, but it was basically like a graphic of all of the presidential signs, uh, that, uh, like, and they all were like change, change, like different words for change. Like, and they're all, I mean, cause that's what they run on. They run on change right there. If you're running against an incumbent, you're running on change. And like, so too is like a liberal running against whatever the like the base is of the of the person who's so this is like, I think that this is exactly right. And um, the other thing that this brings up about in terms of blame, is that if the government is getting blamed for things, and politicians spend half their life taking blame for when things go wrong in their district or generally or whatever, this is why they love social media right now, <laughs> and tech companies, because it is such a good distractor and such a good way to score easy points because it's like right now it seems like the only thing people hate more than government is social media. So no matter what side you're on, you can go to bat against like uh, against the big tech companies.
1: And and just to be more precise in language, the problem isn't when people blame the government because sometimes you should blame the government government. You know, sometimes governments pass dumb laws or, Enact stupid policies or, you know, just look, you know, elected politicians are like all other human beings. Sometimes they screw the pooch. It's when people blame the idea of government and the idea of liberal democracy. Like if we weren't allowed to, if somebody would punish the other people, this wouldn't happen to me. Yes. yes. You know, that's what that's when democracy falls apart. It's like, so this factory, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm watching some of the scroll go by. You know why factories closed in the Northeast? Because it's cold and snowy and they were old. And those factories closed in the 70s. Some of them closed in the 80s. It wasn't anybody's fault. It's the way of the world, especially for Americans who yes. want a lot of stuff cheap. Um, there was a huge flap in my hometown My hometown was, once upon a time, the world headquarters of Spaulding. Um, If you've ever seen the movie Men in Black 2 or 3, where they're at a game, and the guy even says, uh, you know, the the time-shifting creature says, that ball was made in Chicopee, Massachusetts. In the 70s, it became this huge thing that Spaulding was now going to make baseballs in Haiti. You know, my God, you know, America's sports... And the guy said this is like 1974 and he said look I can't sell baseballs that are stitched I can't, I literally can't, you won't pay for a baseball that's been stitched by an American worker by hand you're just not yeah. going to do it and I can't afford it and you know and of course the answer my friends back home are like well the company should take less profit well companies aren't in the aren't in the business of and I said especially That's easy to say when you're 20 and not 60 with a 401k. You know, all of a sudden the retirees are like, no, no. The bottom line is people don't want to pay a lot of money for a baseball stitched by an American worker who needs, you know, a healthcare plan to do it. So baseball's moved offshore like TVs and a lot of other things. We in the book, I point out, we have never come to grips with ourselves as a society that has avidly chosen consumerism.
0: All right, so I want to propose a different explanation for the rise of uh, contented armchair right-wing anti-democratic people, which is that, which may appeal to your sovietologist roots um so we have a latent
1: go ahead we're we're listening
0: yeah we have a latent racism the NSA is is listening more latent than other times and the cold war actually acted as something of a suppressant to it Mm -hmm. because boy if you know, if you hated the commies enough uh, you didn't want a whole lot of internal division uh, to get in the way of that. Um, and so, you know, you were willing to, uh, from, you know, quite conservative to quite liberal, there was a kind of a uh, consensus on a certain kind of, kind of tolerance that uh, allowed uh, certain progress to happen. Soviet Union falls apart, and it turns out for the right, it is really, really important to have an enemy. Um, and so conveniently, uh, after after working with Bill Clinton as the enemy, Bill and Hillary Clinton served that function in much of the 90s, uh, uh, overseas Islamists become, for a time, uh, a very useful target in that regard. But eventually, it migrates back to its... Uh, to you know kind of what is uh deepest in the uh american soul in this regard which is kind of good old fashioned uh uh bigotry um and the 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 longer you give it the more it tends to migrate to that so within 15 20 years of of the fall of the soviet union you have uh, a lot of armchair white people who are worried about their race status and giving political voice to, uh, uh, to race status issues. Uh, and that is really a big part of the story of the rise of anti-democratic, uh, which is the same old story. It's the same constituency that had anxieties that give rise to you know the Tulsa race riot, actually, right? It's um, it's people afraid of of uh, people afraid of racial equity and uh, and that that has a, a lot more to do with the story than the than than the book acknowledges. I'm curious for your thought. We don't have the Soviet, you know, we're not allowed to have the Soviet Union anymore, but we can still have good old fashioned racism.
1: I start from the same place you do. And I diverge a bit in part because the, if this were just a story about America, that's a really strong explanation. It does not explain Italy, India, Poland, the UK, Brazil, Hungary, you know, it just, and it's all happening at the same time. So the idea that it's like the illiberal middle class is just this kind of racially anxious, which it is in the United States. I mean, I think that everything you said, the, the illiberal middle class in the United States is basically a bunch of middle aged, well off white guys. That is uh, uh, that is like the the demo For the kind of illiberal movement in the United States, that and younger men, and it's it's overwhelmingly men, but that younger men who um, feel like the world has simply not paid them enough respect Um, because we live in this kind of fucked up respect culture now that is all about unearned esteem. And I talked about this in the death of expertise, and I think it's an emanation of this narcissistic society that we've developed, that we're all about esteem, but not about actually earning it. Um, where I think I diverge from you is, you're right that the civil rights coalition in the United States is in part kept together because we don't want to look bad in front of the Soviets. We're saying, hey, democracy, freedom, you know, and, and when the Soviets say, vas you know, this standard Soviet expression, then you lynch Negroes. You know, and we kind of go, yeah, OK, well, we got to stop doing that if we want to win the Cold War, because that looks bad and it is bad. Um, when the Cold War goes away, I think something even even worse happens, which is that we lose any sense of seriousness about politics. There were the Cold War for both the right and the left put kind of guardrails on I mean, it's 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 even more than just not, you know, that great Star Trek line, Captain, not in front of the Klingons, you know. But there was there was also the, these guardrails that said, look, you cannot have utterly unserious politicians involved in this because you know, global apocalypse is at stake here. There is an alternative model of of um organization. You guys are you're giving me a you're 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 gonna give me a, a seizure here um someday the model,
0: will fix this that you it's can't the, br- it's you, the worst You, it's um, so you can't bring somebody on screen without them flashing up on
1: screen. so so that goes away and suddenly it's like why not Bernie Sanders why not Donald Trump why not Marianne Williamson you know why not any of these you know goofy candidates and this stuff why not Ross Perot right I mean people that would not have gotten traction until the 1990s, um, you know, when you could say, yeah, what's the worst that could happen? We're the most powerful country in the world. Everything's, you know, it's not, the, the idea that you would have to say, can you envision Ross Perot on the phone with Brezhnev goes away, um, which was a big guardrail in the way we dealt with politics for 50 years. Um, I That aside, I think you're right that Democracies, I think, tend to need an awareness of the existence of what an undemocratic world looks like, and the Soviets constantly gave us that. You know, even China now. I always say this: if you ask young people, China, oh yeah, didn't Tom, didn't um, uh, you know, Batman jump off one of those cool glass towers in Shanghai? I saw that in a movie. You know, there's nothing scary about the notion of China. Or you know North Korea, we play it for laughs. Um, You know Iran is far away, and we don't understand it. We had we don't have an alternative model that reminds us that democracy is an act of will. That democracy is not is not self-sustaining, and that the that the inertia or the what am I trying to say that the steady state in in a in a dangerous world. Is that right? It's not a given that we, we kind of that we're an unstable thing that can decay into authoritarianism if we're not constantly nurturing this. Guard, you know, I feel like I'm doing Chance the Gardener. Gardens don't grow by themselves. Um, you know, the house doesn't stay warm on its own. But, but I think that after the 90s, we lose that. And I think I know people really object to this notion of prosperity and affluence. But even within my own lifetime, the amount of just base level affluence and living standards has been so dramatic so fast that we have developed a kind of gigantic sense of hedonic adaptation, which means hedonic adaptation is when...
2: You Whatever. talked about this last time you are on the show. I, I've used it like five times. No, yeah, it's it because spray. the standard
1: of living you're at becomes the minimum you can tolerate. Uh, and I was thinking about this, um, and I'll just, you know, I'll use a really she elitist example. Um, you know, I used to drink cheap wine, right? So, hell, oh, yeah, 10 bucks a bottle for some, you know, Bola or Ernest & Julio later on, you learn, like, you, you, your tastes become educated. you say, wow, this is a really good Cabernet. Suddenly, all that other stuff tastes like swill. Something you drank when you were 25, you'd say, boy, this is really good. And all of a sudden, you're 45, and you're going. No, I
0: mean, um, it, it is so true that it is the such pe- a true statement. The people who insist that living standards have not increased in the United States, they're just wrong, they make a point of excluding a whole lot of data Right, that everything. shows precisely the opposite. It is simply, simply, simply untrue. There is no
1: way to make that. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but there is no way to make that argument. It is it is so dumb that it's that it just fails on its face, and and even trying to stratify it by class or income, you know, people. What, what a lot of people fall back on, and and um, where I think some people criticize the book They say yes but you're not taking into account income inequality well inequality is a question of justice it's not a question of living standards right. yes. if we're all if we're all millionaires yes. and, and there is uh, 10 billionaires then we have a tremendous in, inequality but it doesn't mean we're not millionaires uh you
2: just really well summed up the like a dinner party that john and i were at like my partner and i were at like Five years ago, and someone said almost exactly this, and John responded like, "No, like that is like wrong. Things are better. It is measurably better." And they were like, "No," and then like I just had to kick him under the table because I'm like, "You're going to ruin this dinner." But I think here's a
1: here's a thought exercise. Tell somebody, ask somebody, how do you think you're without anything else? You know how how are you doing? You know, I you know I'm okay. I got a car, got a house, or I'm living in an apartment. And I'm you know whatever the. Say, you know, your boss makes 50 times what you do. Wow, you know, now I'm unhappy, right? Then say, oh, I'm sorry, that's a typo. He makes 5,000 times what you do. All of a sudden, you're going to say, my life sucks. Some you, 10 minutes ago, you might have been a little, have a kind of normal level of class resentment. And, and one of the things I point out in the book is that people really cannot grasp that level of wealth. So they they think they think they understand that level of inequality, but what we find, what what you'll actually see in American society, is that we direct our anger at the people that are closer to us in income rather than farther away. We're not mad at your neighbor. Yeah, we're not mad at Jeff Bezos uh, for you know. And somebody pointed out you know they these guys shot themselves into space, but they said, look, we're philanthropists. We're picking up the space program. I personally thought it was stupid and irresponsible. It was like watching nine-year-old boys buy themselves rockets. Yeah. Um, but instead of directing our anger at those guys, we go on Zillow. It, it is literally a thing that people surf Zillow, checking out the prices of their neighbors' homes. We're not really sitting around saying, well, you know, I I I those super that. rich ceos they don't you don't go and look up where you you're looking down the street and saying hey i went by a you know raised ranch that i saw for sale today and it's in my neighborhood how come that guy's house is worth this we have become and i think kate this goes back some of it goes back to social media we've become this innately resentful society about everything we are well, we walk around with huge amounts of resentment about everyone around us, because we are in touch with them too often. We are spending too much of our lives looking at each other's lives.
2: Well, this is, okay, so I will make two quick points, and then I will have the Genevieve's questions, and then we're gonna go to questions. Um, But my first point is that, yes, um, there is too much information. We are really literally not built to grok or understand or take in all of this information. And we are like, let's even set aside comparing our lives and our standard of living. Like, we are exposed to like the worst, like seeing more and worse atrocities in a worse way than we ever were before. They were all happening before. We just weren't seeing them and kind of, free- and we can do just about as little about any of those in like the day to day. And so we have this profound, to get back to the blame idea. We have a profound sense of like absolute like like a like a poverty of power. We have no ability to go off and like change how this thing is happening or these these like how to like more effectively evacuate the Afghani like you know nationals that are trapped there. Um, So I mean, anyways, but like so there's that. The other thing I just want to get back to really quickly with the 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 point about um um what was it? It was restorative nostalgia or. Yeah. So this restorative nostalgia, I was just thinking about how you even in like in the example that you gave. So one of the things that I actually think is just true and like at an individual level and then collectively as a society is like you go through life and you have like, again, you are just exposed to more and more and more pain and suffering as you go through life and more and more difficulty. You are like you are cared for and have like almost very little liberty and you gain more liberty and then you kind of have problems and issues and expectations on you and your parents die and bad things happen and you see more of it but the other thing is is that when you start to do basic cognitive measuring when you take your kit you have to go and like send your kid off to college you say to yourself what did i pay when i went to college well first of all you probably didn't your parents paid or something else but like and you kind of me- do these two measures, and it seems like there's been this huge growth in like the price. Like it's like so. Like there's these cherry picking of examples. There's like a whole bunch of cognitive biases and kind of heuristics that we're leaning on that kind of create and add to like why nostalgia is powerful. Of course, it's always going to look better when you look back at whatever the hell you think happened when you were a child. Just you just had less going on, probably. Like, and also, yeah. you know, when
1: I, it's easy for me to say, you know. You know what a good year was? 1981. Well, the it wasn't a good year. Unemployment was like nine percent. Inflation was high. You know, we were country. I would say the period from 1973 to 1983 was about the worst decade I lived through. Um, But you know why I like 1981? I was 21 years old when I was in college and I had a really nice
2: exactly. Um, Exactly. You know, and
1: it's like, okay, to me, it seemed fine, but that doesn't mean it's fine. The cherry picking of nostalgia. I talk about this in the book. If I hear one more person say, well, you know, if we take 1970 as a benchmark, okay, let's take 1970 as a benchmark (laughs) where, you know, you're a white working class. First of all, in 1970, that was the year of the hard hat riots. Where white working-class guys said, "This sucks. No one listens to us. The working class is downtrodden. It was so much better in 1950. Um, but you know, 1970, yeah, you could afford a three-bedroom apartment in, in you know, the West side of Manhattan or Hell's Kitchen, where you could raise your two kids, but you might find one- a dead
0: body on your way to school as I and did that one- year.
1: One, one TV, hey,
2: look how one phone. I've gotten out of that story. My God. You know,
0: <laughs> I am totally down with it because it's, it, it's been such a good I've gotten so much mileage out of the story. The <laughs> we'll do it, somebody's doing it
1: already. My first college apartment, Bob, look, it, when I started college in 1979, you know one reason college was cheaper? Nobody went. 14% of American women went to college in 1980.
2: Yeah, this For is what equality gets you.
1: You know, in 1970, those were great times. Wouldn't it be great to be a woman again and have to ask your husband's permission to get a car loan? Wouldn't
2: it be great yeah. to be
1: black in because, 1970?
2: Yeah. Restrictive covenants, baby. Couldn't you know, like, sure. I, hey, what but I grew up. I grew up with affordable
1: housing. Yes, built by William Levitt with restrictive covenants and sold by the way how could my how did my grandparents afford it well i don't know your grandfather got drafted and had to go fight a war and got the gi bill that's one way to afford it yeah but not all that stuff gets wiped. that's like memory wiped when we start talking about yes but in 1970 a blue-collar worker could earn x dollars yes as kevin William, i'm sure not somebody's real popular with this crowd but as kevin williamson once said you can have a 1957 lifestyle just like your parents and very cheaply, but you really, you know, and he does, I'm, he doesn't add this part, but I say his point is you really have to commit to the bit. (laughs) If you're going to live a 1957 (laughs) lifestyle, you know, no car, only public transportation, one TV, three channels, one phone, no air conditioning, you know, 600 square feet in an apartment. I mean, you really got to eat that whole shit
2: sandwich. Jello what, mold sandwich. Jello mold sandwich. <laughs> All right. Want, I want to I wanna go to audience questions. What people questions.
1: want today is 2021's lifestyle at 1971's prices.
0: All right. I want to go to audience questions. Uh, but uh, before we do that, Genevieve has questions that Kate is going to read.
2: Yeah. Okay, so Genevieve is not here because she had a baby on Monday. Um, and so, uh, but she is listening to your book on Audible and she's not done yet, but she wants to know how long did it take you to record it? And did any of your, did any of your reflections in the book change as you read it out loud?
1: Uh, first, thank you, um, because I was very nervous about recording the book. I really wanted to record it because so much of it is autobiographical. Uh, And so much of it was very personal. And while the wonderful Sean Pratt read my last one, I really made a pitch to Oxford and to the company to say, I I need to read this book. So I've been very insecure about that. Um, I don't actually like my own speaking voice, which you would think an egomaniac like me would, but I I don't. Uh, It took me two full days at a studio in Boston with uh, about a couple hours afterwards for pickups and retakes. Uh, so the studio time was like two eight-hour days. It's one of the hardest things I ever did, um, and it, it's hard to record a book. Nothing in, in my mind changed. Uh, I didn't read it and hear it out loud and say, I wish I hadn't said that. What I really noticed, and I'm, this is a really um, prosaic and boring observation, I noticed that I my sentences tend to be a little too long, and that there were a lot of typos in the book that I didn't catch until I read them out loud.
2: Interesting.
0: All right, Daniel Burge, backlit as ever, the floor is yours.
1: So I am wondering for the panel's uh, hunches about what's gonna happen Saturday at the right-wing rally in DC. So on the one hand we have Uh, reports that the online chatter is a bit like before uh, January 6, uh, according to uh, the FBI. But on the other hand, this is being organized by a group that doesn't get great turnout usually. So I'm wondering where everyone stands on it. I'm taking a wild guess and saying um, that it's a fizzle. That uh, a bunch of people being in jail right now, and I, you know, I hate to ever predict something because by saying this, it guarantees that there will be a giant riot tomorrow. Yeah, like
2: but that's my, what Ben said last time about the January sixth riot.
1: My, I, I have this Wait, kind of. I
0: didn't know. I said they're going to try to storm the Capitol, but if they do, the Capitol police will that's be true. very well prepared. Sorry, I had the I had the protesters exactly right. I had law enforcement totally wrong. Yeah,
2: fair enough.
1: But there's a there's a part of me that just thinks that a lot of these guys, for all the big talk about we're going to go rally. I mean, the fact that members of Congress are chickening out like Matt Gates, Oh, I had a family commitment. I just wonder if a lot of these people are saying, yeah, I totally support this, but I'm not fucking going to jail like those people did the last time. Uh, so I my I have maybe it's just that the wish is, you know, that I, I'm just hoping um, but there's a part of me that wonders if after all this big talk, you know, cause now there is a show now the cops are already, the national guard is on the scene. You know, if these people want to get arrested and do time, the government will more than happily, um, accommodate them. And I, I'm just curious about how many of them really are going to show up and say, yes, I'm willing to go to jail, uh, for this. And I, I don't think it's going to be as, on the other hand, you could get it both ways, right? You don't get a lot of show out show up, uh, um, turnout from the people that are kind of the rank and file. But there may be some very dedicated people who are going to plant bombs. I mean, I think I think we're due for an I, I suspect that no matter what happens, there is going to be another Timothy McVeigh event somewhere because of the past because of Trump,
0: basically.
2: What do you think, Kate? Um, I, I, I have no idea. Um, all I know is that one of just as an interesting side note in, in terms of blame, um, Airbnb, whenever something like this starts happening, they don't really, they don't really talk about it. They do background searches on all of the people in the area who have rented, uh, homes in like the area that like come in for that, for the event. And then they cancel them and they pay the host and they pay the people back and they dehome them because they don't want the blame of it being part of the news story that like, so-and-so that set a pipe bomb at like the such and such event, rented an Airbnb with a group of eight other like neo-Nazis and Airbnb did nothing about it. So anyway.
0: I will just say, I think Tom's uh, analysis is uh, very likely right. Yeah, It is actually hard to turn out a lot of people to Washington. It takes a lot of organization uh, groups that have a limited history of doing it Uh, Should not be presumed to be capable of doing it in large numbers uh, on first attempt. Uh, Law enforcement is. Look, I said this last time, so take this with a grain of salt. Unlikely to be caught flat-footed a second time. And not this time. And, um, and I, I do think uh, this is the sort of thing that is. Uh, also, the the number of people who were deeply sympathetic to the one six is smaller than the number of people who were deeply sympathetic to the idea that the uh, election was stolen. And so, I think the universe of people to draw on is is relatively small. Um, and the, the one caveat I would give suffer. is is that people uh i do also agree that it tends to concentrate the hardest of the hardcore who are most likely to be violent
1: that that's my point that the people who are going to show up are going to be crackpots and they're gonna they'll probably target stuff that's away from the capital because they know that they know the capital is being watched and you know other tar. but they'll you know i i wouldn't i wouldn't want to be on the metro
0: Oh, and, uh, you know, if you live in this area and you want to do a good deed, uh, keep an eye on the black church in your neighborhood, because uh, as I said in December and January, uh, often when these people come to town and they can't do the thing that they wanted to do, they then turn to targets of opportunity, which are often, you know, Obviously, gay or trans people in the street uh, and uh, buildings associated with uh, 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 generally black churches. But I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna say one other thing that I know sometimes riles people up, but I don't, and I don't mean to. But the worst thing that anybody could do is organize a counter protest.
2: Oh yes, ignore them. Ignore
1: them. Stay away from them. Make them seem small and petty and stupid.
2: don't give them attention
1: don't give them attention don't give them a target you know let them march around in circles until they get tired and go home
0: eric berg uh your camera isn't working for reasons i can't determine but your mic is on and uh the floor is yours oh now your camera's working there we go um so especially coming from a state that just went to crisis uh care standards (laughs) yeah what do you think's the perceived end of this game of this kind of decadent decay of democracy? You know, of the idea that people seem to be fine with the 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 elements of democracy working so poorly that, you know, basic services are starting to break down. You know, I know some people don't care, but for those like in the GOP who know better, who seem to be okay with it. I just don't understand where they think this all ends up.
1: I've said many times, if you're Elise Stefanik, where it ends up is that you get to stay in Washington. That's it. I mean, I think, you know, when every time I hear Elise Stefanik talk, I hear her saying, I'm not going back to upstate New York. Hey! Well, (laughs) you know, I think Elise Stefanik is... I'm not going back
2: to upstate New York.
1: Elise Stefanik is saying, I didn't go to Harvard so that I could be on the town council in Clarksburg. That's not, you know, Josh Hawley. I didn't go to Stanford and Yale so that I could hang out a shingle in Sedalia, Missouri. That's not why I went. I am slated for greater things. And if I have to rile up a bunch of dangerous rubes so that I keep going back to Washington, that's okay. It's not going to affect me. I live in the Emerald City. So what if Idaho, I, Eric? I guess you're in Idaho, right? I mean, you know. It, so what if Idaho is, you know, melting down and people are dying in the hallways of hospitals? I don't live in Idaho. I live in Washington, and I'm a member of Congress. That's where I think it goes. I think it is that shallow and opportun, opportunistic. And this is always my my place where I point out that I'm really glad that I wrote a whole article that boiled down to calling Jaden Vance. <laughs> All
0: right. Mike Godwin, uh, the floor is yours. We have three more questions. We have four more minutes. So I'm gonna ask for quick questions and quick answers.
1: Oh sorry, can you hear me now? Yep. All right, great. Um, so the quick question is: is it your is it the critique of democracy that just the democracies always suck because people are you know pursuing Self-fulfillment. Uh, you know, this is Plato's argument. Uh, over time, democracies decay because people are pursuing their own interests. There's no unity. There's no common purpose. And and is there? So the question, I, the question is really, do we bring back some kind of communitarianism? What do we do with institutions so that they survive when the worst elected officials are in charge? Uh, so that's actually two questions, and I'll stop there. Um, I, I'm not making the argument that democracies inherently suck uh, and then go down the tubes because people are pursuing their self-interest. That's, you know, what really scares me is that that's the argument being made by the um, by guys like Adrian Vermeule and the, the Catholic integrationists who are like, you know, what we really need a pope. Not this pope. Of course, but a pope to basically order our lives and then we will be grateful to, to the new sovereign who will tell us what to do. I think the I think one of the reasons the American Republic was had such longevity is that we were able to unify around an idea. Even an imperfectly executed idea, but an idea that was no longer dependent on blood and soil and and heritage and ethnicity and we could simply say that we could all become part of something um, that is that is part of the Constitution and that we could struggle together to keep realizing that idea. And I think what's happened is um, we've decided uh, that we as a society, all of us from top to bottom, have decided that our own good is more important than, than anything else. And for a variety of reasons, but I think someone, someone cleverly noted that what I'm really doing is critiquing capitalism and I am, Yeah. Um, you know, this is um, you know, it's an awkward place for an old school conservative to be, but this is partly what happens when um, we commodify and consumerize everything. And we made that choice. I mean, we have to stop blaming the government and corporations and other, we, we can, stop we're like a society of people that are yelling stop giving us what we want you know stop
2: stop someone should tell that
1: stop listening to (laughs) us you know um and i think that that's that's just you know and we we have it within us to do that um but we have to be self-conscious about it And that's partly why i wrote the book to try to make people more self-conscious about this
0: the last time i saw adrian vermule i made the mistake of Casually calling him a conservative, he scowled at me and said, "I'm not a conservative. I'm an authoritarian." Lisa, you get the last question today. Uh, Apologies to Zunyi, whom I have tried and failed to bring on the screen. Um, uh, We'll figure out what happened, what went wrong, and do it a different time. Lisa, the floor is yours. Too bad. Zunyi's question was great. Anyway, maybe I'll read it to close
2: out. That would be great, because I really liked it. Anyway, my question is, why isn't the 80s thing about there is no society, government is the problem, Ronald Reagan coming and saying that, you know, the government has come to help you, and that's what the problem is. Why isn't that at the root of what you're complaining about? Because I, as sort of like your leftist, you know, from Silver Spring or whatever, I'm like, I've never felt the way you're talking about. And so a lot of us are wondering, who is this we you're talking about, and are the... Republicans or former Republicans willing to repudiate that perspective, understanding that it sort of went wrong. I,
1: I hope you don't mind if I sigh heavily and say, "Yes, yes, I know it was all Ronald Reagan. Everything was good before Reagan, and Reagan, Reagan, Reagan."
2: The actor.
1: Sorry. Part of the problem here, and I think the the ahistoricity of this argument is that when Reagan said government was the problem, in in a 21st century context, that sounds really nihilistic. It sounded really sensible if you had lived through the 1970s huh. this is the problem Reagan did not run in as the you know to be the emperor of the you know or the chairman of the Green Lantern Corps in some other universe it was a direct response to what a lot of people both on the right and the left perceived as the serial failures of large government um, Um, initiatives throughout the late, my mom was a democrat who worked in a great society program that radicalized her by 1980 my mother uh, we had a picture of, I say this in the book we had a picture of Jack Kennedy in the dining room till the day I sold that house in 2012 but working in that program literally radicalized my mom to say this is bad this we are creating the problem that we think we're solving and many americans felt that way so always going back to this touchstone of you know because remember what reagan reagan didn't say like all government is the problem and therefore we should be nihilists reagan thought that the government could do a lot of great things like national defense for example um so this 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 argument drives me crazy, because the consumerist perpetual, and I'm gonna and Lisa, I'm gonna throw some of this on the left. The consumerization of a perpetual youth culture begins on the left in the late 60s and the early 70s. And if we had let
2: the youth have it, we wouldn't. We'd still be drinking New Coke. Okay, Tom. So. <laughs> new
1: Coke. God, I remember. Wow, what a what a callback. But this notion that somehow we were this totally virtuous society until Ronald Reagan came in with the flappers and and the Gatsbys, I'm sorry that that no one who lived through the 1970s, which was an incredibly I think in the book I call it oily decadence of the 1970s the 1970s were hideous and they were. They were the kind of the karmic fallout of this 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 explosion in the late sixties and the notion that we are now perpetually organized around being a youth culture. And as think, as
0: yeah. a child of the nineteen seventies, I would just like to say in defense of that decade, absolutely nothing. Um, uh, you know,
1: I'm sorry, but you know, it was a I was watching decade. I was watching Saturday Night Fever, which of course is based on a on a lie in, in an in an article that turned out to be false, but just the environmental kind of the the mise-en-scène, can I say that, you know, the kind of whole picture of the 70s. I was watching it with my teenage daughter and she just kind of looked at me and she's like, "Did this happen? Did the world look this way?" And I was like, "This is the good version." Yeah. This is the effect. nice version. The you cannot only. understand, you cannot understand what happens in 1980 unless you understand everything that happens in the 15 years before it. And to simply say, "Well, it was all fine until then," until that is they simply not. not true.
2: people then. And I would I, just, I like, will say, I would just American, like to say, in defense you
1: Americans were decadent <laughs> from the beginning.
0: I would just like to say, I can. Only, there's only two things that I think are wonderful about the 1970s. One is it gave the world Sesame Street and uh, and, and steal uh, and, and there's some good music from the 70s. Number two, it is the actual the early 70s are actually the golden age of movies um, and uh, by that you know the creation of the R rating in 1969 allowed a flourishing of film. Uh, other than that, the entire decade should just uh, go away.
1: Well, we, but, you know, as a more serious issue of politics, I mean, the people who, who you know, like me, who were 20 years old and in their first presidential election, I and mean, there was really a sense that the country was in complete freefall. And not just, I, I mean, again, we always think of this in terms of Ronald Reagan, and tax cuts, and government is a problem. I'm sorry, there was a Cold War going on, and we were losing it. There was you know, there was a palpable sense that we were literally, like the, the Soviets were putting out headlines saying, the correlation of forces has turned in favor of socialism, and America is on its way out. And I was sitting in classrooms in 1979 and 1980 with professors who were kind of tenting their fingers and saying, you know what, Soviets might be right, might be over for us, we're kind of just, on the way out. Just like they're saying now, we are going to leave it
0: there. Tom Nichols, you're a great American. Uh, you've written a great book. Uh, I really uh, enjoyed it much more than I expected to. Uh, Lennon would be proud of you for calling <laughs> us on our bourgeois decadence. Um, uh, we are going to be back Monday. I have no idea who our guest is going to be. Uh, uh if anybody knows but kate until then
2: um we're not allowed to have fun anymore but we are allowed to act like we're really not allowed to have fun anymore ever
1: so
2: much fun and we'll just have to buy tom's book instead yeah Yeah, thank you all thank you
1: all for coming now go buy the book mark levin and tucker carlson are still outselling me and i blame you people for that
2: yeah uh I mean, yes. Take it away from